0: Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 85 for the first third of September 2013. The topic I'm going to talk about today is whether blood moons, occurring on Jewish Holy Days in 2014 and 2015, mean that the apocalypse is nigh. The claim for this episode is a bit more widespread than I thought before I started researching. It's a claim that's made by many, and there are even websites dedicated to it, such as the Blood Moon Prophecy at bloodmoonprophecy.com, though it may have been started by a guy named Mark Biltz, the founder of El Shaddai Ministries. The idea is that blood moons occur during several Jewish holidays in 2014 and 2015 and that because of those occurrences, the apocalypse is going to be triggered, or at least the second coming of Jesus is going to start. In order to address this, we first have to know what a blood moon actually is. It's at least a partial total lunar eclipse, as in, there are two main parts in Earth's shadow that the moon can pass through during a lunar eclipse, the penumbra and the umbra. If you were on the moon when it was in Earth's penumbra, then the Sun would be partly blocked by Earth. You'd still be able to see some of the Sun. If you're on part of the Moon that's in Earth's umbra, then none of the Sun is visible to you. It's completely blocked by Earth. This means that, from Earth, when we see part of the Moon in the penumbra, it only dims a little bit. It's like blocking out just part of a light bulb. You're still going to dim the room just a little bit, but it's still gonna be pretty bright. When any part of the moon enters the umbra, then from Earth, it gets much darker. If there were no atmosphere around Earth, then for all practical purposes, the part of the moon in the umbral shadow would not be visible at all. No light could reach it. Instead, because we do have an atmosphere around our planet, sunlight can be bent around the Earth. It's like a lens. The little bit that does get through can then reflect off the moon's surface, and so we can see it but there's very, very little light that actually gets there, and so it's much dimmer. And because it's going through our atmosphere, which preferentially scatters shorter wavelength or bluer light, then it's just the red light that can make it all the way through and reflect off the moon back to Earth. I mean, this is why sunsets on Earth are red, except in this case it's the sunlight passing through twice as much atmosphere in order to get to the moon, so it's even redder. That's why a total lunar eclipse looks red. That's also why it's probably called a blood moon by people who want to sound all scary and mysterious. I should also note, before I leave this background into lunar eclipses, that a lunar eclipse, when the moon goes into Earth's shadow and dims, can only happen during a full moon. That's because it's only during a full moon that you have a line between the sun and the moon with Earth between them. The reason that we don't get a lunar eclipse every full moon is because we live in 3D. The moon's orbit is slightly tilted by 5.2 degrees relative to the plane of the Earth and the Sun. So not only do you have to have a full moon for there to be a lunar eclipse, but the moon also has to be just about on one of those two nodal points where it crosses the plane of the Earth's orbit around the Sun. It sometimes helps to visualize this as a big hula hoop with a small round disc-like coaster embedded in it, with the hoop going through the middle of the coaster, and the coaster tilted slightly relative to the loop. The, The hoop, the big one, represents Earth's orbit around the sun, and the coaster represents the moon's orbit around Earth. Only twice in its orbit does the moon cross the plane of the hoop. All other times, it's either above or below, so it won't be in Earth's shadow. And those two nodal points, those two points where the Earth's orbit crosses the Moon's orbit, or vice versa, move. So from one orbit to the next, they're in slightly different positions. But they're almost exactly 180 degrees away from each other. That means that if you have a lunar eclipse coming up, chances are that there's a solar eclipse either two weeks before that or after it. Because that's when the Moon crosses the next nodal point. We call that an eclipse season. And if you're in luck, then you get three eclipses each two weeks apart. Like a lunar eclipse, and then two weeks later a solar eclipse, and then another two weeks later another lunar eclipse. And because of the way that the precession of the nodes works out, oftentimes the next time the nodes line up with the line between the Earth and the Sun, it'll be about six months later. So if you have a good eclipse in March, chances are good that you're going to have another eclipse in September, six months later. So to review a bit, the Blood Moon is a lunar eclipse where at least part of the moon is in Earth's umbral shadow, so it's very dark and very red. Eclipses only happen when the Sun-Earth-Moon align in both the same line and the same plane. The same line can only happen during a new moon, where you get a solar eclipse, or a full moon, where you'd get a lunar eclipse. And because of the way the moon's orbital tilt works relative to Earth's orbit around the sun, these nodes often line up to give you eclipses about six months apart. And during each eclipse season, you can get two or even three eclipses happening two weeks apart from each other. Now that's a lot of celestial mechanics to take in, so let's take a break from it. The second piece of background information for this episode is about the Jewish calendar, or more specifically, the Jewish or Hebrew religious calendar. I personally find calendar systems fascinating, so you'll have to indulge me a little bit while I get into this. The Hebrew calendar is a pretty ancient system, probably based on the ancient Babylonian calendar from which it gets the seven-day week, the concept of a leap day or week or month, and even the names of the months themselves. The 7-day week very likely comes from lunar phases, since it takes about 7 days each to go from new to half moon, half moon to a full moon, a full moon to another half moon, and then half to new again. It makes sense to divide your calendar that way in order to have a month based on the moon. The problem with this is that your lunar calendar is short from the actual solar year. So even over 2,000 years ago, they knew to add an extra month every 2 or 3 years to correct for these differences. They added it based on observing actual natural agricultural events, like when seeds would begin to sprout. Around 1,500 to 1,800 years ago, this kind of rule of thumb for when to add an extra month was slowly replaced by various mathematical rules that were fully codified in the Mishnah Torah about 900 years ago. The current Hebrew year is only off by about 6 minutes and 25.5 seconds from the current average solar year. This means that every 224 years, it'll be behind by a day, while every 231 years, it'll be behind the Gregorian calendar by a day. In principle... The Jewish calendar, though, is still based on lunar cycles, and it repeats with phases of the moon every 235 lunar months or about every 19 years. New months are based on the appearance of a new moon, and like the month of Ramadan is still done today in the Islamic tradition, or the Islamic religion, originally the new crescent moon had to actually be cited and certified by witnesses. We don't have to do that today, it's based on When we know mathematically the new moon happens, um, Islam hasn't quite caught up with that. But more importantly for this episode, Jewish holidays pretty much always happen relative to the start of the month. You might be able to see where this is now going. Based on hebcal.com, that's H-E-B-C-A-L.com, there are 10 major Jewish holidays. And I should note that by birth I'm Jewish, but... I never went to Hebrew school, so I apologize in advance for my crappy, or crappy pronunciation. First, we have Rosh Hashanah. It's the Jewish New Year, and as one might expect, it begins on the first of the month of Tishrei. So, a new moon. Yom Kippur is next, and it's about ten days after Rosh Hashanah, during a waxing gibbous moon. It's the Day of Atonement. Sukkot is the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, and it starts on the 15th of Tishrei, so it's during a full moon, and you could get a lunar eclipse. Moving on, we have Shemini Atzeret, which happens right after the end of Sukkot, which is on the 22nd of Tishrei. It's a waning gibbous moon. Simchat Torah, sorry, for ball there, um, is right after Shemini Atzeret, the 23rd of Tishrei, so it's another waning gibbous moon. Or if you happen to want to play a game that requires you to be connected to the internet, thank you very much Electronic Arts, then you could call this what I did originally, the Simchat holiday. Hanukkah is eight nights and ends on what is supposed to be the darkest day of the year, at least in the Northern Hemisphere, so it typically starts around the 24th or 25th of Kishlev and ends the second or third of Tevet. Anyway, it happens during a new moon. Purim, I can pronounce that one, is on the 14th of Adar, maybe, that's the correct pronunciation, which is a full moon, that's the important part, it's a full moon. Pesach, or Passover, starts on the 15th of Nisan, another full moon. Shavuot, or maybe Shavuot, which I originally pronounced a few weeks ago as the French might, as a Shavuot, is the ninth big holiday. It's the Feast of Weeks and it starts on the 6th of Shivan if you're in Israel or the 7th of Shivan if you're outside of Israel. Apparently cheese blintzes are the traditional food for Shavuot, the holiday on a half full moon. Tisha B'Av perhaps is the 9th of Av, Av, a major feast day, but it's unimportant for this because it's a waxing gibbous moon. Now, after going through these 10 holidays that I probably butchered, I was also told that two Bishvat should also be added to the list of major holidays, and it's on the 15th of Shavat, which is a full moon. So depending on how you count, either 10 or 11 holidays, we have two holidays over a new moon and three or four on a full moon. In other words, half of the major Jewish holidays could occur during a solar eclipse or a lunar eclipse, and 30-36% to 36% happen when a lunar eclipse or blood moon can happen. But how far apart do these full moon ones actually happen? We have the months of Tishrei, Adar, Nisan, and Shavat. These are the 7th, 12th, 1st, and 11th months, or in order perhaps, the 7th, then 11th, 12th, and 1st. I list seventh as first because that's when Rosh Hashanah is the Jewish New Year. I also list it first because if we have a blood moon during Tishrei, the seventh month, that gives us both the twelfth month or the first month for when another blood moon could happen, because they typically happen in cycles that are about six months apart. So what are the actual dates for when this happens that people are all scared about? Passover, or Pesach, is the April 15th of 2014, and it happens during a full moon when there will be a total lunar eclipse. Six months later, we have Sukkot, which happens on October 8th, 2014, when we also have a full moon and a total lunar eclipse. Six months after that, and six months after that again, we have Passover on April 4th, 2015, and Sukkot on September 28th, 2014, also during total lunar eclipses. There are also some solar eclipses on more minor Jewish holidays during this time that start on their first of their respective months, such as March 20th, 2015, with Rosh Chodesh. Rosh Hashanah is on September 13th, 2015, which also happens to have a solar eclipse. Now, I did a bit of digging, and you know I, I really love it when the math works out. In 19 years after this, it'll happen again, in April and October of 2033 we get total lunar eclipses during Pesach and Sukkot. And it happened before in 1986, 19 years earlier. Just about that 19-year cycle of repetition of the Jewish calendar. Now, admittedly, it is somewhat more rare that it happens two years in a row, but still not ridiculously rare, and definitely not a has-never-happened-before thing. And if you make your prediction much more vague, or your timing much more vague as in any Jewish holiday happening on a lunar and or solar, well not and, but a lunar eclipse or a solar eclipse, then there are a lot more matches. Now, that's really about all I have to say on this topic, which seems kind of anticlimactic, so I guess I'm going to try to say a little bit more. I'm not sure what logical fallacy this is, or even if it has one, but it's effectively saying that B happens, therefore an extraordinary event, C, is going to happen. Well, ignoring that a very mundane thing, A, causes what seems to be rare, B. In this case, Biltz, who as far as I can tell is sort of the modern guy who originated this thing for 2014 and 2015, he claimed that this apparently impossible thing of blood moons happening during Jewish holidays two years in a row happens. Therefore, it's a second coming of Jesus and the world will end." Now, he also, in his defense, said that this happened back in 1967, which happened to be when Israel reclaimed Jerusalem. And it also happened the year after Israel became a state, in both 1949 and 1950. Meanwhile, he's ignoring, by their very nature, that half of the important Jewish holidays happen on days that can have a solar or a lunar eclipse. That because of the nature of celestial mechanics, if an eclipse happens on some of the holidays, it will almost certainly happen on others that are six months later, or two weeks before or after. And that this cycle repeats every 19 years because of how celestial mechanics interact with the Jewish calendar. Meanwhile, Mark Bilt's story is a bit of an interesting twist to this otherwise pretty boring tale. From what I can find, he started talking about this back in 2008 when he published stuff on his website and did a few interviews, such as to Prophecy in the News. He claimed that this won't happen again for hundreds of years, but that it happened twice in the 20th century, those dates that I mentioned, like including the year after Israel became a state, which is, quote, nigh unto impossible unless it was set up by divine design. That's according to the interviewer J.R. Church. Now, I don't know why the year after Israel became a state is more important than the year that it did become a state, but that's sort of forcing the facts to fit the story that you want to tell. Now, he claimed that it was, oh, well, it was the year after Israel became a state because Israel became a state after that April day that you need for Pesach. Uh, I don't know. I think that this is really kind of stretching it. In the interview... Biltz was pretty emphatic that this was going to happen. However, the story on prophecyinthenews.com is now an article not found. Biltz's own response to criticism throughout the internet back in 08, to which he responded on his own website, is also no longer available. His qualifications, which you can find on the internet wayback machine, are that, quote, if, and that if is capitalized, these eclipses in 2015 are what the Lord was referring to. Then 2015 would look like a possible year for his feet to land on the Mount of Olives. And if this is true, then the tribulation could, not would, start this fall at the Feast of Trumpets. End quote. All of those qualifications were pretty much severely lacking from his original statements, which I've linked to on YouTube. So... Besides the making of Much Ado About Nothing and Nothing That's Really Rare, we have someone who backtracked from what he originally claimed and then tried to delete the claims entirely. Of course, in the age of the internet, you have no such luck. there's a bit of feedback to discuss during this episode, including a correction. In episode 83, when I talked about David Sarita in part 1, I said that electrons only have a positive spin and a negative charge. I'm not entirely certain what I was thinking. Charge, I I was correct about that. And half spin, I was also correct about that. But the spin can be positive or negative. That's how you're able to actually have two electrons in one orbital of an atom. Pauli has that whole exclusion principle, Pauli's exclusion principle thing about it, where no two identical fermions, and electrons are fermions, can be in the same quantum state simultaneously. If you have, for example, a neutral helium atom, then it has two electrons in the same orbital, identical, which would disobey the Pauli exclusion principle. But one of them has a negative one-half spin, while the other has a positive one-half spin, so is all good. That doesn't really change anything about my point that David claimed that both an electron and an anti-electron are in an atom at the same time. It just corrects the information that I gave. The second bit of feedback relates to my previous work on the claims made about or of by Greg Braden. That was episode 17 of the podcast, so going back a ways. Linda chose to respond to my blog post. Here's what she wrote. Do you realize that criticizing another tells more about you than it does them? Quote, Those who can, do. Those who can't, criticize. and quote. Unknown source. If you are truly brilliant, educated, and gifted, why are you not out on the leading edge of science, helping with a new discovery? What hope or solutions do you offer mankind? Why are you not drawing crowds of thousands like this man? Greg Braden. Why are you not loved like this man? Greg Braden. Your envy is obvious, and your insignificance disturbs you. You remind me of a cur dog who nips at a fireman's pants leg on his way to put out a fire. If you are engaged in brilliant research, as you say, and truly, quote, on your way to put out your fire, end quote, why would you stop in the middle of that great work to pose as a cur dog for the next fire truck? I responded to Linda, saying... Sort of what my generic response is when people say this about my work. I wrote, Making things up is much easier than real science, Linda. I find it fascinating that you chose to insult me when you're saying that I'm the one doing wrong things by criticizing someone else. Try actually addressing the rebuttal I made about his claims. Try some actual investigation. Or continue to insult people and accomplish nothing. I'm not incredibly surprised that Linda didn't respond. Now what's interesting is that apparently my blog post about Greg Braden had been posted on some New Age forum about something because it was getting a lot of hits over the last few weeks and several other people responded. A person writing as Jane Booth is a bit more generous. Her post is long so I'm just picking out a few sentences. I think we all have to learn discernment to search for our own truth. Whether we find our truth from a religious teacher, New Age guru, or scientist, or our parents, is indeed a combination of these sources. Ultimately, we have free will and choice of what we believe. I do not see Stuart Robbins as being critical, but someone who is exploring the truth from his point of view. I thank him for being discerning, speaking up, and exploring data rather than believing everything a speaker says." Each of us has a right to our own truth, and it is not about having others agree with you, but simply to live in your truth to create a better life for all. End quote. Now, I think that Jane Booth's response is more measured, but it gets to this issue that I've heard a lot from New Agers this issue of truth. I find that they use the term much like they use the term energy as something nebulous, this nebulous idea out there that can mean many different things. In science, to be fair, there is no such thing as truth with a capital T. There are models that get progressively closer and closer and closer to explaining what we observe, but there is no such thing especially as my truth versus your truth. To use a dictionary definition for the word, Truth means, in true dictionary, circular definition form, that which is true or in accordance with fact or reality. When you look up the word true, I get in accordance with fact or reality. Another definition I find is accurate or exact. So, as I said, truth can't be different for one person versus another when you use the actual definition. It is what it is. It makes no sense for me to say that my truth is that the sky is blue, your truth is that the sky is green, and someone else's truth is that the sky is chartreuse. The sky is typically blue on Earth regardless of what anyone wants or thinks or decides. It's time for The Puzzler, where I attempt each episode to attempt to ask a critical thinking question based loosely on the material discussed in the main segment. There was no puzzler last time, but this episode with the main segment on blood moons, the puzzler deals with photography. Is there ever a time when the moon is up that, with modern photographic equipment, you can capture both the moon and hundreds or thousands of stars and have both be visible and properly exposed in a single shot? If so, when? And if not, why not? Try to figure out the answer and send it in to puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I'll discuss it during the next episode. And that episode should be about whether Mars was murdered, or so the claim goes. So if you have ideas for a puzzler topic on that, please send it in. By the way, that Mars murdered does not have to do with Richard Hoagland. So don't worry. Richard Hoagland free for a few more episodes. By way of announcements, again, I will be at the TELUS Science Museum in Georgia, which is based on my reading of a map. It is northwest of Atlanta, Georgia, the capital of that fair state. I'll be there this Friday, September 5th, giving a lecture on a form of the workshop that I did at TAM, the imaging for skeptics, uh, the ghosts, UFOs, stuff, uh, how your camera lies to you, uh, Some some words rearranged to form an actual cohesive title. Uh, With that in mind... That wraps up this topic for the 85th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for the episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, on the Facebook page for the podcast, or you can even tweet me. I'm at pseudo-astro. That's P-S-E-U-D-O-A-S-T-R-O. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback, and if you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, I greatly appreciate everyone who takes the time to review and or rate this podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, then also tell lots of other people. Every rating, every review, every word of mouth helps.